Hi, this is Amber, and you're listening to Amber on Podcast. Hi, hi, hi. Welcome to episode number four. Number four, numero cuatro. Maybe I shouldn't speak Spanish. Number four of my podcast. This is episode number four. I'm going to get this together. Okay, this one. We're talking about one of my favorite people of all time. And I know I say that every time. I'm probably going to continue saying that every time because I love so many people. And I love Chris Boyd. Chris Boyd hosts Think on KERA, which KERA, uh, NPR, I think they're kind of all together, perhaps, or one is licensed and feeds the programming of another. I'm not really sure, but I should definitely ask them. They have a show called Anything You Ever Wanted to Know, and you can ask any questions, so I should ask them that. At any rate, Chris hosts a show called Think. It's called Think with Chris Boyd, and she is a really, really great interviewer. I, I compare her a lot to Terry Gross. If you've ever heard of Terry Gross, she is direct and to the point like any good interviewer, terse and has really compelling questions, but she also tends to pick interview subjects, subject matters, whatever, that people to speak to that have an interesting point of view, an interesting topic to dis- discuss that isn't something that you'll find very often in the mainstream media. And I actually am very, very curious as to where she finds her material because a lot of the times when I go to look up the different people that she's interviewing, they don't even have Twitter accounts or any really social media at all. Um, most often they're academics, so they're teaching at universities or something. So my my only thought is that perhaps she's attending a lot of a lot of talks or maybe she just hangs out with really intelligent people all the time and they just tend to run in packs. At any rate, this episode, she talks about the Little Rock Nine. The Little Rock Nine, if you don't know already, now you know that they were the nine students that were uh, part of integrating the schools in Little Rock when they chose to go from being segregated schools to desegregated schools. And I've always found the, interest, the story of the Little Rock Nine to be really, really interesting for a lot of reasons. And this one, is no different. So let's uh, start the show. Now, before we really get started, because I'm going to go ham on this subject, on this topic, and I need there to be a little clarity before I start to get people extra confused and or angry. So I, Amber Camille Ligon, am half black. And I'm going to go ahead and answer the question that I always get that doesn't matter at all, but I always get asked this, is that which which parent of yours is black? It's my dad. My dad is black and my mom is white. And no, he's not terribly dark. I say terribly dark, like you can see him in the daylight and at night. Uh, my mom happens to be pretty fair skin, yes, yeah, so that is is why my complexion is a little lighter if you've seen a picture of me. And I bring this up because it's been something that I've kind of struggled with, not kind of, I've totally struggled with this a lot of my life. And there are a lot of reasons why that is. And I'll get into some of them as I start to tell this story of what happened uh, for one of the students at the Little Rock Nine that was interviewed on Chris Boyd's episode of Think. But I just kind of wanted to bring that up because it's important to know the source. And I have learned one thing for sure is that context is everything. I tend to just blurt out different opinions or facts or thoughts, and sometimes they don't go over so well because I'm not giving enough context. So, in the interest of providing context, you are listening to a mixed girl who is half black and half white, and that makes you so beautiful. So here we go. Melba Patillo Beals. She is also a very beautiful, very beautiful woman, young woman, child, and she is one of the Little Rock Nine that integrated the schools in Little Rock in 1957. The questions that Chris asks... 
Malba, a lot of which I'm going to discuss here, are questions that I never heard discussed when it came to this particular subject matter. I think we all know about the kids in Little Rock that, you know, were sent to the white school, but they didn't want them to go to the white school. So yeah, a little backstory. They, for those who don't know, they wanted to go to the white school to desegregate the school. So they selected some kids who would go and like start this whole like, let's mix them together process. But the people in Little Rock were like, oh, hell to the no. We are not letting these black ass children in with our white children and get them all contaminated and shit. We are not doing this. Now, keep in mind, you Years earlier, the law had been, tas- been, been passed to desegregate schools, that it was not constitutional, separate but equal was not okay. And so this is almost three years later. I believe that that bill was passed in 1954, that law. Three years later, we're in Little Walk and we're actually trying to carry this out. And the students that have been selected to do so are, well, they're, they're, they're trying to stop them from doing so. They're told to go to the school and they've, everybody's decided that, okay, this is what we're going to do. And the NAACP actually hand selects these kids. And they're all good students. You know, they, the NAACP actually coaches them through this entire process. They're surrounded by a lot of adults that are giving them insight and, um, and you know, skills and rules to abide to abide by so that they don't, you know, ruffle any feathers at the school. The whole idea was for them to stay at the school. So they needed to do everything in their power in order to get along and not complain and make themselves a permanent placement in this school, which is a huge, huge undertaking. And as we'll discuss later in more detail, but the way that these kids were received well, they weren't received. Basically, the whole damn town like lost their minds, and all these white people were like, "Oh hell no, you're not going to this school." Spitting on them, trying to stop them. I believe it was the governor of Arkansas that said, "No, we're not going to abide by this, and so we're going to stop it." And so they do try to stop it. The governor does try to stop and using the troops and using different methods of within his power to stop this from happening. And of course, the children are still fighting to go to school, and and they do, but not without a lot of grief, a lot of pain, a lot of abuse a lot of oppression, a lot of torture. That's how they're able to go to school until until the president of the United States calls calls in the National Guard, sends in the National Guard, a la late Katrina, a la, I don't know, Harvey, says the National Guard is needed here because this particular place cannot uphold the Constitution and the laws and the freedoms that are given in this country. They are not able to do it, so we are going to have to step in and make sure it is done. So, little backstory. Melba. Melba is the person that's being interviewed by Chris Boyd. Her name is Melba, which sounds great because I don't know where her name is from, like what the origination of it. But prior to this, I'd only knew, known of Melba Toast, which I really like Melba Toast. So in my mind, she just has to be delicious like toast. I don't usually try to make everyone a food, but I just like the name Melba. I digress. Melba is growing up in Little Rock. And as a young child, one of her first memories is realizing the difference in the way that her parents behaved inside the house versus outside the house. Inside the house, her mother was herself um, very, very smart, very opinionated, very strong. Um, her father's a six foot four black man working, you know, on the railroad. So, you know, you have a very assertive, you have a father. And then it seemed to me like they were pretty healthy family dynamic. You know, everybody was chipping in and they had love in the home. Um, Her grandmother, Melba's grandmother, also lived there in the home with her. And the way she describes the dynamic, it just seems like a traditional loving family. However, this loving family starts to take on different attributes when they leave the house. And when they leave the house, Melba notices that her parents are behaving strangely. She doesn't really understand why all of a sudden they're very demure. Um, They're they're bowing and curtsying to white people and and sort of taking a, a back seat to what else is going on, not um, not standing up for themselves, not speaking to their thoughts, ideas, and 
and feelings a way that they had at home. And now this is, like I said, one of her first memories that happens when she's like three years old and as time goes by, she realizes that and is taught that there are two different ways to be. There are a way to be in public. There's a way to be in public in front of white people. And you are too expected to be very humble and to get along, to follow the rules, to always maintain your place, which is not their place. You know, God, I can't even imagine this. I have how confusing that must be for a child. She, of course, is, is taught this behavior as well. And the day that they announce that they're going to desegregate the schools, she's in an all-black school, Melba, and the teacher asks, who w- who lives near Central High School in Little Rock and who would be interested in attending Little Rock High School when they, when they desegregate the schools, when they integrate? And Melba raised her hand, said, yes, yes, I would like to, because she had seen this high school. Now, let me just let you, this high school is huge, huge. It looks like a fucking airport. It's eight square, eight blocks in diameter. And you look at the pictures of this mother. I tell you what, they could land a plane there for sure. So Melba had had seen this high school when she was growing up and seeing the grounds that it was on. It was a beautiful school and it had an auditorium and, and it just looked so cool. She wanted to see the inside of it. So in her mind, prior to, you know, being of age to actually go to high school, she was like, yes, sign me up. I would like to do this. Flash forward. The time comes, and originally there was something like 16 or 17 kids, I believe, that were going to be in- enrolled in the school. But over the course of the announcement and determining, you know, what children were going to be going there, it got so scary and so risky and life-threatening that these students started to eventually fall off and their families and and themselves and their families decided that it wasn't such a good idea for them to participate in this. Throughout the interview, Chris is also asking Melba, you know, this is quite a big undertaking, a big a big burden to to place on a young child to to be the first to do something like this in a in a situation where it was so so ill received uh, and so 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 dangerous. You know, putting your own child's life on the line to hope for a better a better future for for not just them but for for everyone else that has isn't born yet. It's a huge huge burden. And Melba says outright, she says, I don't I don't believe that I could put that on my children. She has three children, and she says, you know, I don't know that I could have asked them to do it. But nevertheless, she did it. And the the day that she went to school, she comes up behind a, a large group of white people. It's essentially, it is a mob, okay? And 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 she's wondering what's going on. You know, what are they all looking at? Is somebody there, a celebrity or something like this? But soon she realizes that they are, they're chasing and harassing and spitting on and kicking um, one of the other black students that she was to attend school with. And eventually they catch on to her and her mother as they approach the school to enter, to go to school that day, to go to, go to class. And they start to call out to her mother and to uh, say really lewd things to her, to Mel- Melba's mother. Melba's mother, she says, my mother was so beautiful and she was so exotic looking that people didn't really know what she was. You know, was she Indian? Was she black? Was she whatever? You know, she had sort of a, an exotic look about her and it made white men especially flirtatious more than they would be with um, a darker black woman, I suppose. And this used to infuriate her father, um, her six foot four father. If you can imagine having to hold back some white man like flirting with your wife and oh gosh. I would I know my boyfriend would lose it and I would lose it too what the anyway so they would have to not do anything they couldn't respond he couldn't respond the father couldn't do much and so what the kids learned over time is that when people start to flirt with your mother and start to say lewd things you need to run. You need to get out of there because your father is not going to be pleased with this situation. <laughs> this is not good. And the, these comments are not for your ears. And so this begins to happen and they begin to run. And as they're running, she's praying that they're going to be okay, that they're going to make it. It's it's really, really scary. And she's worried. They didn't expect this. 
And just as she approaches, some of the men at the front of the mob trip and fall, and then they're able to run around them, basically, and get into the school. And Melba says that this is the first time where she felt really, really close to God and that she knew that God was her only survival. She began to say the Lord's Prayer, and I think it's the 23 Psalms or something. I'm not very religious. I don't don't really know a lot about the Bible, but it's something about some Psalms that she says over and over again in order to just give her strength and remind her that God loves her, God loves her, God loves her. She tells a story about how her grandmother used to tell her that God thinks that she's so beautiful, that she's such a beautiful child of his, that he has his her picture on his refrigerator. And she took the picture of Melba and put it on her refrigerator, her grandmother did, and said, see, this is exactly what God has. God has you right there, beautiful you. He thinks you're so beautiful and so special. He has you right there on his refrigerator, which if you've ever been on someone's refrigerator, you know the significance of that. If you're on someone's refrigerator, you're special. You Not just, not, not just anybody gets up on the refrigerator, okay? I don't even care if it's like the magnetic one or whatever. You really love someone, you will tape that bitch up there for sure. So the analogy is, you know, that God loves Melba and that she has someone that cares for her so deeply that can help her get through really tough situations. And if religion isn't really your bag of tea, or even if religion, the the topic or someone being religious turns you off, I think that the way that you can think about it, and I say this because I I spent a good portion of my life being kind of turned off by religious people or religion in general. So I, I kind of, I understand that a bit. And I think that the other way you can explain it is just having that love and that life and that desire for you and goodwill for you come from another person. Now, whether that be your parents or your grandmother or whoever it is, can be really, really powerful. Or even if it's just coming from within, it can be really, really powerful when you can maintain that and love yourself and hold yourself up on this pedestal because you are so amazing. And this person is, you know, um, corroborating your story. Basically, you've proven now that this person also thinks you're great. So you're surely great. I think that there's that's incredibly powerful and that's what gives people self-worth and, and worthiness. And it that's, I believe, how Melba is explaining her reliance on, on God and having somebody who cared so deeply for her in order to endure this because the abuse that she endured, she had acid thrown in her eyes. She was spat on repeatedly, um, pushed, kicked. And keep in mind, they were instructed to not do anything. They could not retaliate whatsoever, ever. That was completely out of their question. They were being coached, as I mentioned, by all the adults around them and the NAACP not to do anything. No retaliation, no nothing. Now, you have to keep in mind also that they were all separated. There were nine black students in total, but it's not as if they were, you know, three in this class, three in this class. You know, they were all in separate classes by themselves throughout the day. So they were eating lunch by themselves. They were doing everything by themselves. They weren't allowed to talk in class. They were instructed to keep quiet. And the whole idea being that what they were working toward and the goal that they were trying to achieve wasn't for them. This is a complete selfless act. Melba tells a story of how Dr. Martin Luther King came down to speak to them at some point through through the beginning of this process. She says that she has a myriad of complaints at this point, like she can't get through it. She just, you know, she's having a really hard time and she's fed up and she's just, you know. And he says to her, Melba, don't be selfish. You are not doing this for you know who you are performing for. You are doing this for generations yet unborn. Know who you are performing for. Performing is a a strong word and a great word in this situation because performing is indeed what you had to do as a black person living in Little Rock at that time. You go out into public, you play a certain role that you must play in order to survive in that community. And this had never really been explained to me quite in this way. For some reason, the idea of segregation and exactly what black people went through has always been a heavy thing in me as a 
black person. I've I've I feel really connected to that struggle and that pain. Not because I've experienced anything directly the same, but because of a lot of things, really. But uh, the injustice in that was not lost on me from an early age. Martin Luther King actually has been my hero since, like, I learned about him when I was four or five. I I've been obsessed with Martin Luther King since then. Actually, um, we're, not, we're not a bad thing person to be obsessed with, I suppose. At any rate. I, the way that Melba describes exactly what happened and exactly how they survived this by not retaliating and not doing anything when they were pushed. I mean, she had acid thrown in her eyes and had to get up and go to school the next day. And just enduring that and knowing that it's for the greater good. And you're a teenager, which many people would argue are the most selfish people. But I, I, I don't think that's true at all. I really don't think that's true. I think that there's an honesty and a discovery and a curiosity that's really cool, interesting, and exciting for teen when you're a teenager. That's that's d- certainly how I felt. And I think that the people who might say that that teenagers are selfish, it's perhaps because they are desiring that same period of self-discovery for themselves. And maybe they are a little jelly, resentful that that these young people get to discover that. But I digress. Now, Melba discusses that the physical abuse that was going on at the time, and she also discusses another facet of this, which I find interesting and not something that's been discussed or I've heard about before, is the psychological effect of this abuse during her time at, at Central High School in Little Rock. Each day when she went to school, she was tormented, called fat, ugly, big, beast, any horrible thing you can think of. And if you're going to school and you're being told how horrible you are every single day and how ugly you are each day, eventually you're going to start to question yourself. Am I who I thought I I was? Am I God's beautiful child on the refrigerator? And Melba says that that this is ultimately the worst part and the part, the the PTSD, but it's not her words, but I'm, so, I'm sure it qualifies. The post-traumatic stress of her experience is that teaspoon by teaspoon, day each day, day by day, this was being eaten away. This this confidence and this love of herself that she had had instilled in her by her family and her grandmother was slowly being undone by people in the outside world telling her day by day how horrible she is. The biggest takeaway, takeaway from this is that when you are waking up each day and you are expecting to be hurt, someone to, you know, throw something at you, someone to hit you, punch you, spit on you, and you know it's coming at any point during the day. doesn't matter. You're going to, you know, someone's going to walk on your heels. Someone's going to push you down the stairs. Day by day, the only thing that's going to change is the time and the place. But you can expect that every single day. And that is what people use to torture other people and to oppress other people. And the first thing that came to my mind, and because she's discussing what happened in her, describing what happened to her in her high school, are other kids who are bullied in high school and who spend their lunchtime alone and who are called names all day by different people and how it wears on them. I thought that that was a really, really, really heavy burden to place on a child and a scary one. And I was really moved by her story because it sounds scary as hell. And I just can't imagine the strength that you would have to have as a 15-year-old to endure this. Um, there's a quote that, there's a there's a clip, rather, that, that Chris Boyd plays during her interview. And they're interviewing, it's a quote of Melba 
during the full school integration, maybe it's like September or something like this, so the beginning of the school year. And she's being interviewed and the interviewer's like, you know, what do you think? How's it going? She's like, it's going well, you know, we're, we're, we're doing good. And, and the interviewer says, you know, what do you think the outcome will be? She's like, well, I certainly don't know, but I hope that it will be, it will be great. I certainly hope that it will work. She's incredibly poised and calm. And I mean, she sounds like she's running for, you know, president. Like she's just incredibly, it's, it's like nothing at all is going on. And yet she's being tortured and her life is being threatened literally every single day until the National Guard are brought in by the president. And by that time, or what happened along with that is that she was, uh, Melba was assigned a primary, secondary, tertiary guard. They had an entire encampment of tents. The army did a tents and the whole setup on the back lawn of the campus of the high school. So when you look out at the back lawn, there are all these tents and like, you know, whole officers running around everywhere. It was a really, really, really big deal for them to have to bring in the National Guard to control these students and the situation in this community. I can't imagine what that looks like going on in a school. It just sounds like a a pop, apocalyptic movie like starring Will Smith or something. At one point, during the first year of school at Little Rock High School when they were trying to integrate the NAACP sent the, the kids on a tour and they went to the, you know, uh, United Nations and um, went to a Broadway show and they were taken around all these different places and Melba says that when she saw all these places for the first time and these white people revering her and waiting in line to, to shake her hand and get her autograph and talk to her. The biggest difference in this experience though was that she wasn't being threatened. In Little Rock, she lived her life day in and day out fearing for her life, literally. She was getting death threats. She was being spit on, pushed. She had acid thrown on her eyes. I mean, I don't... And yet there was this other world that was existing where Black people could be treated well and fairly and their result. I mean, she came from a, a poor family as well in Little Rock. And so she described seeing all these, this heavy cutlery and these beautiful big white plates that were all ornate and, and, you know, going to the Broadway play and the star of the Broadway play taking her to their house, her home to, to have them over and entertain them. It was a whirlwind. And she was so close to God at that time and felt like he was really helping her get through what she needed to get through. And then she saw this world that she had dreamt of but it was even better than what she dreamt of. And she she said that she was really pissed off at God. Like, why did you put me in Little Rock and not put me here? How could you put me there when this place exists? And she says that it really threw her. And she went through a lot with her religion and questioning a lot of things. I went back to her grandmother and had a lot of a lot of questions that she needed answered. Anyway, Melba stays at Little Rock High School for an entire year. And it isn't until towards the end of this year her first year at Central High School, they are getting a lot of death threats, the family and Melba, and it's getting really scary. The scariest point comes when Melba's uncle, who's passing for white, he is living in a different town. He's in the Klan. He's the sheriff of a local town. And he calls the family and says, look, you got to get out of there. It, the Klan is offering $10,000 dead, $5,000 alive for Melba or any of the Little Rock Nine. And so you got to get out. Of, that was a lot of money back then. You're talking 1957. So she did. She did get out of there. She left. And this is where the story gets <laughs> gets a lot more exciting, I guess. Or I guess it was exciting the whole time, but maybe it's a more positive exciting. She gets taken away from Little Rock and she is assigned a host family in California. When she flies to San Francisco and lands at the airport, 
she is greeted by a bunch of white people who run up to her and she's scared shitless because she thinks that they're the clan. Now, mind you, she just came from Little Rock where they were all trying to kill her and there's a bounty on her head. And she's completely freaked out and these white people tell her that they are her host family. They hand her a white Bible and a cross and they say, Melba, we are here with you. We're never going to leave you. We will protect you and you're coming with us. And Melba went to their home, this sprawling ranch in Northern California, and lived with them for the rest of her high school and still considers them very much her family, very much part of her life. And get this, she gets to the high school there and, it, you know, they have some black kids, but she says they didn't really know they were black. There were a lot of resources there. This is a very affluent neighborhood. And everyone treats her kindly. And it's like a damn Emma Stone movie. You know that one where they filmed in like Alabama or Mississippi or something like this? It's like a beautiful ending to a horrific story. <laughs> it's like that. Even horses at this and then like cows wake her up in the morning she said that she was so excited because and yet so confused because they were planning fun instead of for her and little rock she was just planning to stay alive you know what was she what golf restaurants you know what are we gonna cook cookie night and all these things she had siblings as well there were three other children i believe that that lived there with her all white ultimately she found that her faith was something that was helping her get through this experience and that the role that she was playing was not for not and it was not necessarily for her it was much much larger than that and years later when she received the congressional gold medal she said that she said thank you god thank you for giving me this mission now i understand and I have completed this mission now it took me a second because i didn't really understand what the congressional gold medal was but i looked it up Wikipedia. And it is uh, basically you're awarded this medal if you are have done something that is so profound and noteworthy to, co- to create change and progression and help aid whatever. But the caveat to this that I thought was really interesting is that not only have you done something heroic or wonderful, innovative, whatever made a big change, but the thing that you have done carries forward into the future to enlighten and free and empower those that will continue to come long after we are gone. And that is really, really, really quite powerful and a very, very appropriate award for, for Melba, of course. But it was the entire Little Rock Nine that received this award in 1998, I believe. And it wasn't until years later, actually, that Dr. Martin Luther King and Curtis Scott King also received the award in 2004. It's an interesting list to look at. I suggest uh, taking a look at it. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. Now, I want to get to the part that I am, I am a little embarrassed to admit that I didn't know the feeling of that sort of oppression and segregation and and racism. I had never heard before that black people, when they were standing in line, if a white person were to come up, they could cut in front of them, no matter what. You were or just, you know, you just stand back in the line. This is Melba's experience growing up in Little Rock, and there are, of course, hundreds of other places where this was the case. But can you imagine that, is that every time you're standing in a line, if another person that is not looking like you comes up, they can cut in front of you. Situations also where her grandmother and she were she, she and her grandmother were shopping at the grocery store, and her grandmother would have to call the clerk over to come and get down the baking soda off the shelf because her grandmother couldn't reach for it. If she touched it, the other white people wouldn't buy the product. So in order to avert that risk, the clerk would have to go and fetch the item down for her grandmother. I think why this is... Uh, interesting and, and important for me to discuss too is because as a mixed race person who doesn't who's passing I don't look black to anyone really um, I've had a whole slew of experiences throughout my life and one which I'll share now uh, is about my grandfather who I 
spent all, a great deal of time with, actually, when I was a kid. Um, and I say a great deal was more than a lot of my other um, cousins because I lived with my grandmother at the time that she was taking care of him when he was ill. So there were a couple of the years there, some summers, where I spent a lot of quality time with him. And and we we got along great. And he was always commenting on how smart I, I, I was and um, thought I was really funny. Hello, of course. And um, it was a great time. Uh, although I, I do have one memory that threw me for quite a loop. And it's when I was at my grandmother's house where he lived as well. And I was watching a, a movie on television and the movie was Ghost Dad starring Bill Cosby. And my grandfather comes into the room and he says, what are you watching? Get that nigger off my TV. And I was like, say what? This is Bill Cosby like back in the day when Bill Cosby wasn't raping children or that we didn't know or harassing women or whatever the hell that he was doing. Everyone liked Bill Cosby, you know. So I was confused because I'm like, hold up. He doesn't like black people? Does he know that I'm black? Let me just get this movie turned off and let's just no one say anything. I don't want to alert this man that there just happens to be one of those um, those Negroes <laughs> residing here along with him. He's long gone now, so I'm not sh- quite sure what the man thought. I really believe that he was aware that my father is black, was black, but maybe he wasn't. Or maybe he was and he was choosing to use that term anyway just to kind of let me know. I'm not really sure. That's a fairly almost insignificant uh, comparison to what Melba went through. But I think that it's important to talk about how closely, how close that is to us today and how close it is in proximity of time. Melba was a teenager when she was going through this and she's still very much alive. She's uh, 76, I believe now. But we're talking about our parents and our grandparents who were really indoctrinated into this belief um, that black people are second class citizens. And the practices that came along with that belief are not easily changed because change is not quick, nor is it easy. And really what this episode did with this episode with Chris Boyd and, and Melba Patillo-Beals, sorry, I have a hard time saying that for some reason. I, I think the biggest part for me was that I see a lot of that carrying over in our culture today. Unfortunately, the racism is still very much there, but also so is the dynamic of white people and black people. And I feel that I'm in an, in an interesting, I have an interesting point of view because I, I straddle both sides. When I was at TCU, for example, um, in Fort Worth, Texas Christian University, where I got my undergrad, I was I was often exposed to people using the N-word in reference to black people. And unknowingly, unknowingly that I was half black and unknowingly also that my big black six foot five boyfriend, ex-boyfriend now was going to be attending shortly. And I would have some words with him when with them when he was there. It was like a totally bad ordeal, but you can use your imagination. I once, uh, I was once at a party where these guys were talking about the golfer Tiger Woods saying it was right when he f- was found out as like being an adulterer and he was, you know, getting laid and all this. And they said, how, they're going around in a circle, how much would you have to get paid to let, to let Tiger Woods fuck your wife? How much would you have to get paid? And I was astounded. I'm like, you guys are really speaking this. This is like, the man plays golf. Like, come on. He's not even with you like this. Like, he can't have the white women. It is astonishing to me. And so much that you would have to be paid. You would have to be paid. Like, they're your prop. I just, I was wheels off back then, too. I was in college and I was drunk at the time. So, I mean. But these are, these are the kind of things that I've been exposed to. These are the thoughts. These are the words that come out of, this is what I've heard in my life. And I'm not saying that it's 
it's beyond repair. It certainly is not, but it wasn't so long ago, and it really changes the way that we all interact. I often wonder, too, why, you know, some of my, my family members, black family members, tend to be so, well— I wouldn't even say it's limited to my family members. I say that I think that I probably I probably have seen this in general among my black friends that some of which I feel are really uh, humble and almost painfully so where I'm like, you don't always have to, you know, let that person go first. You don't always have to be so patient when this person's obviously taking too long. You don't always have to just sit back and let this poor service happen to you. Like we can stand up for this so we can say something. And they'll say, no, no, this is like there's not even a question. They're just they're calm relax, not ruffling any feathers, and we'll just do things an easy way and not ruffle any feathers again. Now, on the opposite side, probably the side that I am on, I'm like, oh, hell no, Is justice will be served for everybody, and I am loud about it, and I'm going to be who I am, and I'm going to let you know that I'm here because I'm not going to let you try to force me to behave a certain way because I am not like you. And I think that that kind of explains the, uh, the majority of black people that are out there. We're all kind of hovering along, you know, straddling both sides and trying to figure out how to be in this society, to be too black, to be too white. And I get a lot of that because I have the white people saying, oh, you're being black. I got the black people saying, oh, you are being white. You're not black enough. So, like, I, I kind of fit nowhere. So I understand this and I think I see it in a different way because it's who I am. And I try to be really honest with myself and, and figure out what I'm feeling and why I'm feeling it. And I'm no different than any other white person out there. Society and what you see in the media dictates how you feel about certain races. There's a really, really great study that helped prove this in which they showed all these uh, research study participants a series of, of television clips. And in all these television shows, they had black people and white people of equal um, roles. So they had, you know, two co-stars or they had as many black people as white people within the show. So uh, uh, an even representation. And then they played the show for these people, but the show didn't have any audio at all. All you were looking at was a silent screen, no subtitles, nothing, just purely watching the action that was taking place visually. At the end, they were to decide what kind of characters each of the people were in the show without any dialogue, without anything. Now, this is based on nothing else but the emotion, the facial the facial uh, emotion and, and reactions that they're having while they're acting and the way they're looking at each other, the different the different places that they're their sets that they're being sat in. Taking all that into account, who is a bad guy and who is a good guy? Bar none, every single time the bad guy was the black was a black person because that's how they're being portrayed in the media, myself included. And other black people as well. There are other studies where they were talking about black people being always, you know, shown as being, you know, in, in under poverty or in poverty. When they did the research and the studies, they were actually not even that large percentage of the population. It was something like 80 percent of the of the ads were showing black people in poverty when only they were really making up like 30 percent. You understand? So we all play a role in this and what we choose to see and what we choose to understand about what it is that we're seeing. It was quite helpful for me to understand how deep this cuts, the, the, the idea of racism and segregation and how different it was, because I know for a fact that that still very much lingers on in our, in our society today in the same way that we all have the baggage that we carry in our bag that lingers within us. And we can't all see what's inside the bag, you know, even if we could look in there, it's not like we could ever really understand it completely. But we all have our, our individual bag that we're coming with. No two are alike. And I often tell my friends and, and use this for myself, too, when I don't understand a situation, I'm getting frustrated that somebody isn't reacting a certain way that I would like them to react. It's because I know my problem is that I'm expecting them to react the way that I would react and say things the way that I would handle themselves the way that I would because I have my bag of what I've been through. But that's incorrect. They don't have my bag. They have their bag. And I don't know what's in their bag. Even if you think you know, you don't know. 
You don't know. And I think that's probably the biggest, the best reminder that I got from from this podcast and from this story in general. I I love when I'm given opportunities to see people in a different light and understand why the world works at it the way that it does a little more clearly. And this provided that bar none. I actually started listening to one of Melba's books on YouTube. There's a great girl who just reads the book like a free audiobook on YouTube. It's been great so far. And um, I'll link that in the show notes as well. She's Melba's, uh, uh, she's, she reminds me a lot of Maya Angelou, actually, in her delivery, the way she speaks, too. It's almost like the same sing-songy thing, like Maya Angelou. I'm not that graceful, but <laughs> you know what I mean. It just everything sounds like a poem. And Chris Boyd is amazing. I definitely recommend checking Chris Boyd out on Think. I love you, Chris Boyd. You are the shit. In conclusion, I would like to thank Melba patillo Beals for being so strong and so powerful and her words and sharing her story. And I definitely recommend listening to this episode with Chris Boyd or checking out Melba's books. She has several and I'll link them in the show notes. And just to give us all a little reminder that what we know is we know nothing. And when you know better, you do better. And I'm just trying to do more good for more people most of the time. Holla. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for listening to episode number four. You are the best. As always, you can check out the show notes at my website, www.mytalkingdollars.com slash podcast. Show notes, blog, contact me. Let me know how you're doing. I'll talk to your mom. I'll talk to your brother. Talk to your sister. I love you. And if you would please be so kind as to subscribe, rate, and review my podcast, Amber on Podcast, on iTunes. I will be forever grateful. I do this for you guys so that I can help more people do more good for most of the time. And if you don't tell me what you like, then how am I going to know? So let me know. Thanks. Bye. I went to go meet my girlfriend for lunch today. And we went to this place, this new place I'd never been before. And when I got there, there were a ton of old people there. And it was like noon. And there were a lot of them were leaving, but a lot of them were coming. And I'm like, I knew it was going to be yummy. It's always a good sign if you go to a, a restaurant and it's all older people, you know it's going to be yummy. You know why? Because this could be their last meal, you guys. You know they're not going to fuck it up. They could die tomorrow. They could die right there. They're going to eat yummy food. may not be the healthiest food, but it's going to be yummy. Think about that.